Hello, my name is Andrew Gross. I am one of the elders here at Bethel Christian Fellowship. And you did hear my last name correctly. It's Gross. So in case you were wondering if I mispronounced my own last name, that's it. Uh, Well, I'm very glad to be sharing with you. And the crowd is bigger than I thought on a Labor Day. So I was kind of expecting a smaller crowd, but that's that's great. Um, you know, I, uh, I I have something to share today. It's a pretty simple message. I've actually been thinking about it for decades, uh, to be honest. It goes all the way back to uh, when I was in college, I noticed that in the very first few months, even maybe the first month, I might say, uh, there was a decision made by other uh, Christians uh, who started college with me to either continue to follow the Lord and to do so more strongly and more firmly or to fall away from the Lord and to completely fall away from the Lord. you know, it happened, I, I was kind of surprised. I knew that when I went into college, I was a new Christian. I knew that that uh, it's hard to stay being a Christian in college at times. And so I was a little worried about it, but I, I, I remember, you know, I met that first week, a whole bunch of other people who said, I'm a Christian too. And within a very short time, it didn't take all four years, it didn't take the whole first year, didn't even take the first half of the year, it took really a few months, even maybe a little less than that, for the decision to be made and people had either, that initial group of people had either continued to follow the Lord or they fell away. Now, of course, I didn't track those people. I, didn't, I don't know what happened after college. I don't know where they went. But, but for those four years, that decision stayed the same. We saw new people come to the Lord who'd, who'd never walked with the Lord before. But uh, those, that initial group of people made that decision at the, at the very beginning. And I always wondered, what made it so that some people had faith that persevered, it kept, they kept believing, and other people didn't? I was, I was sort of, and I've been wrestling with that ever since. You know, and now I'm in a stage of life where I'm getting closer to those middle years where it feels like the pressure of life at times just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And life just seems like it's getting harder and harder. And what I've noticed in, in this time, I've, I've noticed my peers, there's sort of another sort of valley of decision or season of decision where it seems like uh, I see people my age, either the, the pressure of life is either squeezing out and killing their faith or their faith is blossoming underneath the stress. And, uh, and then I've also noticed that in, uh, as I observe people sort of in their golden years, that they have either, the same, same thing has happened. They've either uh, seemed to have grown closer to the Lord, or no matter how long they appear to have been a faithful church attender, there's, there's some people, older people I've noticed, who their, their faith has almost become sort of an empty shell. It's lost any of its inner fire and vibrancy. And I wondered, you know, I, I just keep wondering, what makes the difference? And one, one possible solution has to do with the actual nature of 
the faith that you're cultivating. Some people are cultivating a kind of faith that is going to last, and other people aren't cultivating that kind of faith that will last. And I want to today I want to highlight a certain part of the faith, a certain ingredient of faith that lasts all the way to the end. You know, Jesus said, um, those who persevere to the end will be saved. So how do you cultivate that kind of faith that perseveres all the way to the end? And, and uh, one uh, solution, one ingredient I want to highlight is the idea of fighting faith. A kind of faith that doesn't lie down passively and kind of let life happen to it, but a kind of faith that stands up and fights, that puts out its dukes against opposition and fights. And, and I think this is one of the key ingredients of, of a faith that lasts, a faith that perseveres all the way to the end. So I, I want to challenge everybody here, challenge myself because... The Lord has been severely testing me on this very issue for, for, well, a while now, but especially lately. Am I cultivating fighting faith, the kind of faith that lasts? Um, there's a, a scripture, uh, if you don't have to turn to it, but if you want to, in Luke 21, verse 34, Luke 21, verse 34, G, um, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap. Be always on the watch and pray. Be always on the watch and pray. And I think... That phrase, be always on the watch and pray, that's at the heart of what it means to have fighting faith. So I'm gonna, today I'm gonna unpack this idea of fighting faith a little bit. Now this, a phrase, I'm, 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 I'm taking this actually from a scripture. If you want to turn to the first chapter of 1st Peter, that's at the, close to the end of your Bible, first chapter of 1st Peter, Peter's first letter and chapter 1, um, Peter writes this in the very first chapter. He writes a call to fight. Paul, Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Now, what does that mean? Uh, this is the NIV, the NIV New International Version. So it's a slightly easier to read, slightly more accessible version. Uh, a more literal translation that doesn't make sense to us today, is this. Therefore, gird the loins of your minds for action. Now, it doesn't make sense to us today because we don't do this. Our, our, this doesn't make too much sense. Let me explain the image. Way back when, in the ancient world, soldiers had little, they were like little kilts, all right? Little, uh, you all know what a kilt is. Uh, well, soldiers had these little kilts, not very practical for fighting, all right? So what they would do when it was time to fight is they would take their little skirts, their little kilts, and they would tuck them into their belt buckle, all right? And that was called girding up your loins. That was getting ready to fight. 
So when the commander or the general would, sort of instead of saying, ready, aim, fire, or instead of saying, you know, to an athlete, on your marks, get ready, to get them ready for the fight, the general would say, gird up your loins. In other words, take your little skirts, tuck them into your belt, be ready to fight. It's kind of a silly image to us today, or kind of, but that's, that was the sign that the soldier, the warrior, was ready to fight. So, so here, Peter is borrowing from that very common phrase that everybody, all of his audience would have known to be a call to fight. And he's saying, gird up the loins of your minds for action. In other words, get ready to fight. So Peter is saying, get ready to fight. And the rest of this chapter, pretty much this whole chapter, uh, unpacks what it means to get ready for a spiritual fight. All right? Um, so let me start off by saying, by asking the question, what do you need to fight for? What do you need to fight for? There's lots of things we need to fight for in our faith, but there, there's three things I want to highlight today. Number one, we need to fight for faith and we need to fight for hope. Okay? Now, life is a genius at making circumstances feel like there's not a reason to have faith or hope. Okay? All of us, no matter how young you are, have gone through experiences that have challenged us to believe, that have said, that that a kind of, that life circumstances have said to us, really, you don't have a good reason to believe God is good and God's in control of your life. Look at what's happening to you right now. Or look what just happened to you. Alright? That, that's, that's a, that's a experience common to all of us. But the Lord, and so because it's common to all of us, the Lord wants to train us to fight for the faith that keeps believing God is good and that God is in control and that God is right. He wants us to keep fighting for that faith and for that hope. Um, And it says, actually, Peter writes in uh, the same chapter, same verse, actually, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. All right? So he starts off the verse by saying, gird up the loins of your minds for action, and then he launches right into set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. In other words, the call to hope is the same as the call to fight. When he says, put your hope in the Lord, he's saying, get ready for a fight. This is part of the fight. Get ready for the fight. Put your hope in the Lord. Okay? So we need to fight for faith and we need to fight for hope. A second thing we need to fight for is obedience. Just a couple verses later, um, as part of this call to fight, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So part of the call to fight, after the call to have faith and hope, is the call to fight for obedience. And you know what? Life is full. In fact, today, if if you haven't already experienced it, I guarantee you will experience it today. Actually, probably within the hour, you're going to come up with 
probably at least a dozen reasons why obedience doesn't make any sense right now. Okay? You're going to come up with, a be- with reasons why the command to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is... Uh, you, you can write that off. You don't have to follow that one because of what's happening in your life today. Or the command, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, all of obedience is summed up in those two commands. You're going to come up with, with, if you haven't already, lots of reasons why it doesn't make any sense to keep that command. So-and-so is too irritating. Another person's too annoying. So-and-so is too difficult. So-and-so is too offensive. There's all kinds of reasons you can come up with why you should disobey God. But the Lord wants to train you to fight into the place of obedience. He want, you, you need to learn how to fight for that, uh, the, that obedience that the Lord has for you. Um, and if you just sort of receive it passively, if you, you know, you're going to get avalanched with reasons to disobey God. And, uh, so, and it's super easy just to, to dismiss all of the reasons God, God wants you to obey. So if you, if you approach it passively, you're, you're just going to fall into that. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go in with your dukes up. You gotta go in ready to fight. You gotta go in with your mind, the loins of your mind, uh, you know, ready for action. Um, the next thing we need to fight for, uh, Peter writes about a little later in the same chapter, chapter or verse 22, is love. We need to fight for love. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. I don't know if you ever thought about the command to love as a, as a call to action, as a call to fight. But like I just said, you're going to come up with all kinds of reasons to disobey that command, but the Lord wants you to fight your way uh, into loving uh, other people. Um, you're, you can... How do I say this? Um, <clears throat> you know, there, there are times when certain people so get under your skin, you, you think it's perfectly justified to not love them. But that command to love never goes away. And so you need to fight. You need fighting faith that fights its way into love yeah. for other people. And, it, and, if, and it, like I said, if you just do it passively, um, if you don't go in with your dukes up, with your loins girded up, um, then you're going to just be washed away by the, the forces that pull you away from love. Um, now, this arouses a question in us, uh, it really arouses a question in me, um, a, a question that's really been getting under my skin for a long time, and that is the question, um, why fight? Why should I fight? That doesn't seem fair that almost seems like it's the opposite of grace. Uh, it almost seems like it's the opposite of, of God's free gift. I thought faith was a free gift. I thought these things were a free gift. Why fight? Um, couple things, couple reasons. Couple reasons why we need to fight. Number one is because the price and the prize is so precious. The price and the prize is so precious. In other words, it's worth it to fight. The price and the prize are so precious, it's, it, it is worth the self-sacrifice, it is worth the death to self, it is worth the risk and the danger that you take when you fight 
for obedience and love and hope and faith. It's worth it. Uh, take a look at this, this passage. Say, these verses in the very same chapter, of uh, chapter 1, 1 Peter, Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets, and I won't read the whole thing here, I'll just skip to the end, the prophets searched intently and with the greatest care. You just think about these prophets. These prophets were, they, they had it going with God. They were tight with God. They knew God. They heard from God. They'd been entrusted with the privilege of speaking God's own word. And yet there was something more precious, something so precious that they were actually searching intently for it. And they were searching with the greatest of care. Even the prophets thought that this gospel was so precious. The gospel of knowing God, it was so precious. It was, it was worth intense searching and great care. That's how precious it is. And then, a couple verses later, Peter writes, even angels long to look into these things. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that angels are jealous of you because the gospel of knowing God is so precious that they actually want what you have? Like, that's mind-blowing to think about how precious it is. And if something is that precious, it's worth the fight. You look um, just a little bit later in the same passage of chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, Peter says not only is the prize precious, the prize of knowing God, but the price of what God paid for you, that makes the fight worth it. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. In other words, what you were redeemed with was more precious than silver and gold. Peter was thinking of the most precious thing possible anyone could imagine in those days, and he was saying what you were redeemed with was more precious. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, defect. So the price God paid for you was incredibly precious. It was so precious. And the prize of knowing God is so precious. It's worth, it's worth the fight. It's worth the fight. Now, uh, the second reason, the second reason why God wants us to fight is because God is training us for something better. God's training us for something better. Now, what I mean by that, I'm going to give you an analogy. Let's pretend for a minute, because this is so far away from reality, it'll never happen, but let's pretend I was an auto mechanic, and I wanted my son to be an auto mechanic, and I wanted him to be trained well as an auto mechanic. Um, What would I do? What's the best way to set him up for a lifetime of skill and success as an auto mechanic. I could go out, when he comes of age, I could go out and buy him a shiny new car with all the fixins and all the bells and whistles that won't need anything but, um, won't need anything but oil changes for the first five, six years. Or I could go out and buy him an old beater that is kind of broken down, isn't working really well, and requires him to weekly, maybe even daily at times, tinker with it and work with it 
to get it into and to maintain it and keep it in a running, um, to keep it running. All right? Now, which one, which gift is going to help him be a better auto mechanic in his life? The, the, which one? The clunker. Yes. Why the clunker? Why? Someone tell me. Why is the clunker a better way to do it? It teaches you. Yes. He, he's actually learning as he's doing. Okay. If he just gets the shiny new car, he's not going to learn a thing about how to take care of cars, at least from that car. All right. But if I give him the clunker, he will little by little over time gain skills that will be rewarding and beneficial for his whole lifetime. Now, some of you might think, well, I'd rather get the new car. All right. Well, so would I. Yes, I would too. But you're following my analogy. The point of the analogy is this. If I want to give my son the higher gift, the better gift, the more lifelong rewarding and beneficial gift, I want to give him the gift of the old clunker because that will give him the bigger gift of these skills. Okay? Is that analogy making some sense for some of you? Okay, some of you. Now, faith is like that. Faith is like a muscle that if it doesn't get used, it atrophies. If you've ever noticed, if you just sit around for a long period of time, sort of trying to reserve your strength, your, your strength doesn't get any more, it doesn't get reserved, it like leaks out, all right? The same is true of your faith. Your faith is intended to be used, to be exercised, to be practiced. And so it's not that the Lord gives you a clunker of faith, but he gives you the gift of faith totally by grace. It's not that you have to work for this at all, but he gives you the gift and he gives you something that has to be worked with practiced and exercised in order for you to enter into something better, something bigger, something more wonderful than if it was just handed to you on a silver platter. So the Lord is training you for something better when he gives you faith that you need to fight for. Okay? Maybe some people would say a bigger question is, is any of this fair? No. So stop whining. It's not one bit fair. Um, Now, I also want to highlight a few things you should fight against. In addition to fighting for, here are some things you need to fight against. I could talk about a lot of things to fight against. Sin, temptation, and so on. But I want to go for some of the root causes of a lot of the sin here that that is sort of um, batters around in all of our hearts. I know these are really big things in my life that I have to fight very continuously, very intentionally. And the first thing, well, all of these things fall under the category of false comforts. They're comforts. They give you a sense of comfort, but they're false. They're empty. They're not what God has, they're not the comfort God has in store for you. So the first false comfort I want to talk about that you need to fight against is the false comfort of the victim mentality. Now, the victim mentality is a root of a lot of other sins because the victim mentality is that basic belief that I am not at fault for my sorry self. I'm not at fault for the difficulties in my life. 
Um, not even one bit. In fact, everybody and everything else is at fault for what I'm going through. All right? That's the victim mentality. Now, now it's, it's true that, that some of us, it, it's, it's, it's very true that you haven't created all of your problems. All right? Nobody has created all their problems. Some, some of your problems are the result of other people and other things in your life. But at the same token, not all of, how do I say this? Um, uh, not all of your problems are caused by other things and other people. And even the things that are caused by other things and other people doesn't necessarily mean that you get to sort of go in a passive mode of victim mentality and say, well, you know, my selfish sinfulness, it's really all justified because everyone else is so such a jerk. All right? <clears throat> um, the victim mentality sort of retreats into itself and says, I don't have to obey God. I can be as selfish as I want to as I want to be, because it's everybody else's fault. Or it's something else's fault besides besides mine. And we need to fight against the victim mentality. The victim mentality, it's like, uh, I don't know, if you've ever gone walking and, and like somebody, like there's a, a dog that rushes at you and grabs your 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 trousers and starts yanking at you, starts pulling at you and doesn't let go. It's It's like... It's like that. The victim mentality doesn't let go if you just say, go away. You need to fight the victim mentality. You need to go against the victim mentality. Um, A second thing um, that you need to fight against, a second false comfort, is the false comfort of self-pity. Now, self-pity is one of those things... It's, it's, that, it's that thing inside of you that when you go through difficulties, it's that thing inside of you that says, oh, oh, you poor baby. Oh. That's self-pity. It's also that impulse in you that when you're going through difficult circumstances, the thing you want from other people more than anything else is for them to say, Aww. poor baby. Aww. That's self-pity. And, and we're so ingenious at getting self-pity from other people. We, someone asks how we're doing and we carefully construct our words so that so that um, we can elicit from them that response of, oh, poor, poor, pitiful baby. Someone asks how you're doing, and you know, instead of responding honestly, or instead of responding, um, you know, accurately, you're sort of like, well. And just want to start singing slowly to yourself. Nobody knows the trouble I've been through. And then, and then someone's like, "Oh, oh, how how are you doing?" And you're like, "Fine." You're like, "Oh, poor, poor, pitiful baby." That's what self-pity is. Now, self-pity. You might not think of it this way, 
But self-pity is one of the most dangerous, most destructive things to your soul. Because self-pity, as a false comfort, it is a counterfeit to the real pity and compassion God has in store for you. God has so much pity and compassion, more than enough, and yet the devil and the world would love for you to have a substitute pity. It's like, it's like comparing, uh, I don't know, like if, if, if uh, I were to offer you, you know, behind this door is a million dollars, behind this door is a little after dinner mint. Um, which one is going to comfort you more? All right? Self-pity is like choosing the after dinner mint instead of the door with the million dollars. All right? Self-pity is so pitiful. And the, the devil would love to sidetrack us with this false comfort of self-pity. Now, the third one is kind of weird, so you're going to have to stick with me for a minute as I explain it. All right? The third thing that you and I need to fight against is nostalgia. Now, nostalgia, this, is, this sounds weird. Nostalgia is different from just regular memory. God commands us throughout the whole Bible to remember, all right? He wants us to remember what he's done. He wants us to be very careful to remember, in fact. But the memory God commands of us is a memory... We reach into the, into the past and remember what he did in the past so that we can believe him again for the future. We can believe he's going to do it again in the future. But nostalgia is different. Nostalgia just has you reach into the back, into the past, and stay there. Remember remember how good it was back in the old days? Remember, remember how happy we were back in the old days? Remember, everybody really liked each other in the old days. And you say, stuck in the past. You have these fond memories, warm, fuzzy feelings about what it used to be like. You guys, I hate to tell you this. You're never going back to the old days. Ever, okay? And if you choose to say stuck back in the old days with your emotions, you're going to miss out on what the Lord has for you in the future. So he wants you to remember and he wants you to be encouraged by the memory, but it's encouragement to believe him again. To believe he's going to do it, and even better, again. Okay? So nostalgia is a very, very tricky sort of thing, but we need to fight against it. Um, I want to finish up with just a few tips about how to fight. All right? I've told you that we need fighting faith. Fighting faith is the kind of faith that's going to endure to the end. We need to fight for faith and hope. We need to fight for obedience. We need to fight for love. We need to fight against um, uh, the victim mentality, self-pity, and nostalgia. And we've talked about why we need to fight, because the, the price and the prize is so precious and because God's training us for something better. But how do we do it? How do we fight? And 
I would say there's three things, three ways to fight. There's other things we could say about this, but three things I want to point out. Number one, you need to preach the truth to yourself. I don't know if you knew this, but every single person in this room, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, every single person in this room is a preacher. Everybody here preaches. Most of us are preaching a bunch of junk to ourselves. Um, That's what most of us are doing most of the time. I know I really struggle with preaching a bunch of junk to myself. We need to preach the truth to ourselves. And this is very biblical. People in Scripture do this all the time. You especially see David do it, and you see him do it especially in the Psalms. Here's an, an instance, a famous instance, where he's preaching to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He's not addressing this to God. He's addressing this to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I want you to think about If you have any familiarity with the sorts of things David struggled with, the sorts of trials he went through in his life, he really had cause to despair. He had cause to believe that there was no reason to believe. (laughs) He had cause to not have hope, to disobey the command to love, uh, to not obey God. He had all kinds of reasons for that. Um, Just look at just the verse right before this one in Psalm 42, um, verses 3 and 4. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession in the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Now you think about this, you guys. David probably wrote this, when he was in the middle of 16 years of running away from King Saul, who was trying to kill him, he, he started off his career with this incredibly success, apparently successful event, killing Goliath. Everybody liked him. And within a very short time, uh, after being promised that he was going to be the next king of Israel, King Saul tried to kill him. And for 16 years, he ran away from Saul and hid in the wilderness, camped out with a bunch of kind of... Uh, not very nice people, and that whole time um, there was no, there was nothing in sight, nothing in the horizon that was evidence that would point to the fulfillment of God's promises. For 16 years, have you, have you ever done that? For 16 years, no evidence in sight that God was going to fulfill His promise. Here He is. My day, my tears have been my food day and night. I know sometimes we've been in those trials where it feels like we're crying so much that. It feels like that's what you're consuming. And and he's remembering back. This is ripe for nostalgia, isn't it? Oh, remember those good old days when, oh, when we used to go to the, the lead the procession to, oh, those were so beautiful. I love those days. They're so, oh, now look at me. All right? So he's just teetering on the edge of despair. But look what he does to himself in the very next, whoops, in the very next verse. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. David had to severely take himself by his shirt collar. He didn't have shirt collars back then, but just 
imagine. He had to pull himself up by his shirt collar. And this is what we need to do sometimes to ourselves. You need to get alone with ourselves. Pull yourself up by the shirt collar. Shove yourself back against the wall. And you need to say to yourself, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. And you know what? Nobody's going to do this for you. I know some of you who are married feel like your spouses do this for you on a regular basis. But no one's going to do this, actually do this for you, except yourself. You need to get alone when you're in despair. You guys, I've been, I've been doing this all week long. I've been doing this all month long. I've been doing this for several months. I've had to grab myself by the shirt collar, pull myself up, and I've had to say, Andrew, why are you downcast? And then that self-pity as I'm starting to say, oh, oh, but Andrew, you don't understand. You don't understand how hard... Andrew! Why are you downcast? Why are you... It's so hard. And you'll never believe what they did to me. And then, Andrew! Why are you downcast? Why are you... Andrew! You've got to do that to yourself. You've got to be severe with yourself. You've got to grab yourself by the shirt collar and preach not the junk to yourself. You've got to preach the truth to yourself. All right. The second thing you've got to do, and this sounds counterintuitive, is you've got to cultivate the discipline of waiting. That doesn't sound like fighting very much. It, doesn't sound, it sounds almost like the opposite of fighting. But I'm not talking about the passive laying around hoping something's going to happen someday. I don't mean that. I mean... Wait, by waiting, I mean putting yourself in that expectant position. When the, when the general would call to the soldiers, gird up your loins, you know, that didn't mean the action was going to happen that second. That meant they needed to put their little, tuck their little skirts in and then get themselves into fighting position and be ready for anything that might happen. That's what waiting is. It's that getting yourself into ready position. Waiting for the Lord. And, and in fact, you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but some translations in some parts of the Bible, when they command us to wait for the Lord, other translations in the same, same verse will say, put your hope in the Lord, or hope in the Lord. Those words in Hebrew are actually interchangeable. Putting your hope in the Lord is the same thing as waiting for the Lord, and waiting for the Lord is the same thing as putting your hope in the Lord. Another, another phrase we could substitute that's equally as valid is expect the Lord. Expect Him to give you the consolation you need for your sorrows and your pains. Expect Him to give you that compassion and that pity that He wants to give you that is superior to your self-pity. Expect Him to give you the joy you need to rouse yourself up with courage. Expect Him to give you the protection, the answers to prayer. Sit there, expect Him to move 
on your behalf. Put yourself in a ready position for the fight with waiting for the Lord. And the third thing, and definitely the most important, the third way to fight is you've got to fix your thoughts on the commander. All right, everybody knows who I'm talking about, the commander. Not talking about George Bush. I'm talking about Jesus, our commander-in-chief. Okay? Now, back in the ancient world, in the ancient days, if you were a good general, you didn't wait for the battle to be over back in your tent, behind, safely behind the battle lines. If you were a good general, you got on your charger so all your soldiers could see, and you would be the very first right into the thick of the enemy's lines. You would be the very first, to, and the, the first one to take the risk, the first one to assume the greatest danger. And you know what that did to the soldiers? That would inflame them with courage and bravery because they saw that their commander-in-chief, their general, wasn't hiding behind enemy lines. They saw that he was out in front willing to take the risk. In fact, that's if you have ever know anything about uh, one of the famous conquerors of all time, Alexander the Great, that's why he was so successful. In just three short years, he conquered, with a little army of Greeks, he conquered the largest empire the world had ever seen, the Persian Empire, and he did it in three years without airplanes, without bombs, without tanks, without guns. Uh, and a great deal of it had to do with the fact that he always, for every battle, was the first one right into the thick of the enemy lines. And you guys, way better, way, way better than Alexander the Great. Our commander is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has assumed the greatest risk and the greatest danger to himself. When he came down to earth, he became one of us. He died on the cross, taking on the very forces of darkness, the very heart of darkness and all of sin. He plunged himself right into um, the enemy lines, right against Satan himself, right against Satan's power, which was our sin, and took it on himself. And if we would look to the commander, if we would look to this commander, if we would fix our thoughts on him, we would find our hearts inflamed with courage to keep fighting. We wouldn't see ourselves as these poor pitiful of... I'm just fighting the good fight, just one little baby step after another, just fighting the good fight. Oh, poor pitiful me, look, I'm all alone. No, we would see ourselves behind the charger of the great commander of the armies of the living God, marching out into darkness ahead of us, vanquishing the enemies. And guess what? Jesus, this commander of ours, is perfectly, 100% successful at vanquishing his enemies. Every foe has to fall at his feet. Think of all the times in Scripture, over and over and over again, when you know some demon-possessed person was brought to Jesus, and with a word, Jesus would say, Silence! Out of him! Be quiet! Be muzzled! Be gone! Think of all the times with illnesses, people were brought to him, and with a word... Jesus didn't have to 
abracadabra. He didn't. He just said, "Be healed, be cleansed," and like that, it happened. His command is so great that everything must bow before it. There is no challenge to his sovereign control. There is no, excuse me, opposition that can withstand him. Jesus is perfectly 100% in control, and we are in his army, following behind him, all right? The darkness that you're encountering, it's peanuts compared to what Jesus has taken on for himself. And you can be assured that he is winning the battle. So you need to fix, you need to nurse your imagination. You need to, you need to soak your brain and your thoughts into, with high, engaged, heart-filled thoughts of the commander of the Lord's army as he conquers the darkness. You need to absorb yourself in that if you are gonna, if you're gonna have fighting faith that perseveres to the end, that goes all the way to the end, that goes through life's valleys of decisions and ends up persevering all the way to the end, you need to fix your thoughts on our commander and chief and ride forward faithfully and full of courage in his expert authority over all things. So I'm going to end and um, I invite you as we sing this, uh, this song here, I invite you to ask yourself, do I have fighting faith? And Lord, if I don't, with your free gift, will you teach me how to have fighting, gay, have fighting faith? Give me fighting faith that's going to persevere to the end. So, um, if you would join with me now as we join with the worship team.